Hallelujah. I'm so excited about this morning. A couple of people I asked about if they were excited about today, and, and, and somebody told me I couldn't even sleep last night. I was so excited. So, uh, you know, I had the, the privilege, many of you know this, of, of going to Israel in January. Was it January? February. February. Uh, and spending uh, eight days, if you count the plane ride and everything, um, with a, a group of pastors and leaders um, and touring the Holy Land. You know, it's always been a desire of mine to go to Israel. And I always thought, well, it's because I, I, I love the Word of God and I want to kind of put, put images, if you will, to, to the text that I read and, and walk where Jesus walked. And that was the biggest reason I wanted to go to Israel. But what I came back with was so much more than that. What I came back with was an understanding of, of, of my relationship with the Jewish people and with, with the state of Israel and all the people there and the love that they have for our country, which you're going to hear about, I'm sure, from Randy in just a few minutes. Uh, it'll, it just blows your mind. And so, um, you know, Randy and I got to spend a long time on a bus and on an airplane and with several other pastors and and I know that he is a man of God. He cares about Israel. He cares about the word of God. And he's going to paint a picture today that I think is going to, even for those of you that are astute and studious in the things of Israel and the word of God, I think he's going to open your hearts and minds today with what he has to share with you. So would you welcome Randy Neal to, to the front, please? And hand you that. Oh, thank you, brother. I was going to hand you that. All right. Good morning. Actually, let's do this over to the side because I don't want to block the, the screen. We can, yeah, we can slide this way. Yeah, over here a little bit. Let's, you know, I, I apologize. I didn't get the name of the fellow leading worship. I don't think we met. Mike, thank you. It's nice to, it's nice to be led in worship by somebody that's already at the foot of the throne themselves. You know, I think it was the second to the last song that Mike was uh, leading us in. And there was a, kind of a prayer in there that said, I want to see these dry bones live again. And if you take a look at Israel, that's exactly what you'll find. And uh, I can tell I'm already getting emotional. Well, it is, there is something about the, the right side of the room. <laughs> okay. All right. Let's take a step back. I know that we. I know we already submitted the day uh, this morning to prayer, but let's just let's do it again if you don't mind. So, Lord Father, I just we do we we submit this. We submit just the gift of the breath that we can draw to lift to prayer, and it's beyond our comprehension that it reaches your ear. But we know that it's so. And so, Lord, if there is anything that I'm bringing today that's not good in your sight, dash it to the ground. And if. Uh, if there is that's good in your sight, then ask, I ask that it would uh, find good ground and that it, those seeds would be nurtured and that you'd uh, use this morning to give people epiphanies and a greater understanding about your firstborn, our elder brother, uh, the apple of your eye. I lift this in the precious name of Jesus Christ. Amen. amen. All right. So um, I'm the Western Regional Coordinator for Christians United for Israel. We were about 10 years old. We were founded by Pastor John Hagee in 2006 in San Antonio, Texas. We started with 412 members on February 6th of 2006, and today we just broke the 3 million member mark. We're the largest pro-Israel organization, largest Christian grassroots organization in the country. And uh, I'm going to circle back around to uh, that passage in, I think, the second to the last song that, that uh, Mike led us in, that, uh, that I want to see these dry bones live again. 
if you take a look, just take a look at the size of the of the of the group of people that we have here. You can't have a group a quarter this size without having people that aren't sure how they're going to make their mortgage payment, that aren't sure what the cancer biopsy is going to say, they aren't sure if their son's going to end up in a prison or a cemetery, not sure if their marriage is going to you know get off the rocks or not. And if you endeavor to look at what the Word of God says about Israel, from the first book to the last in your Bible, the absolute worst thing that's going to happen to you is that you're going to come out the other end realizing that your faith rests in a God that's in the business of doing what he said he's going to do. Our faith rests in a promise-keeping God. This is not about you becoming a Zionist activist or, you know, we're not going to get into end-time prophecy. And You know, people treat end-time prophecy like it's a Sudoku puzzle. And, and they, you know, they buy all the DVDs, they buy all the books, they tune into all the channels, they go to all the conferences, and, they're trying, and if they see something happen, they think they connect the dots, and they, you know, they think that they're tracking. You know, the sons of Issachar, that's all you need to know about end-time prophecy. The sons of Issachar, they saw the signs of the times, and they knew what they were supposed to do. And so you need to pay attention to what's going on so that, you know what you, so that we can know what we're supposed to do. But if you just... If you take a look at what the Word of God says about Israel, all the, the absolute least thing that's going to happen is that he's going to breathe on the embers of your faith and he's going to rekindle them again. And so, you know, let's, just, let's take a look. You know, when, when uh, Pastor Ron and I and 32 other pastors went to Israel, before we, before we left from LAX airport, we gathered the night before for dinner. And I warned them all. I said, that's, you know, when you, when you go, let me just refresh my memory because that clock is... It, it's 10 to 6 already, so, so according to that, I've been preaching for seven hours already. So, um, so, so what time do you want me to wrap up? Okay, all right, so, you know, one of the things, you know, everybody had the same lenses on, are, you know, and they, and they asked the questions, not publicly, but kind of off the side, are we really going to see, are we going to really go where the, the streets and sidewalks are 2,000 years old, or are we going to stand on the stones at Paul and... Jesus stood on, and yes, of course you do. You know, you get down and you touch them, and you can tell that they are the real deal. But don't miss what God's doing today. It's great to see that stuff. And, and you don't need to walk where Jesus walked to know that Jesus walked there. There's something about it when you do that, that makes you feel like you're home. But don't miss what God's doing today. And I'm just going to give you a drive-by. We're going to do a drive-by, and we're going to connect some dots. And I guarantee you, uh, that, that we're going to take a look, and th those, those dry bones are living again. And that's the, that is exactly, why did God choose Israel? We're going to answer that question just in just a little while. Why did God choose Israel? We're going to answer that question. You know, a lot of people, they, they think that Israel is this giant country because of her military victories. She must have this, you know, this the, must be this colossal country. She, look, she makes up less than one-eighth of one percent of the neighborhood that she lives in. She's a little bit smaller than the state of New Jersey. 290 miles long, 85 miles wide at her widest, nine miles wide at her narrowest. One of the cornerstone passages, I don't know if Pastor Ron has preached on this or not. I'll bless those who bless thee, I'll curse thee that curse thee, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. You could do a six-week sermon series on those three lines, and you could unpack the history on, all, on those three lines. I'll bless those who bless thee. There are millions of Christians across this country and around the world that believe that the incredible station that this nation has enjoyed, opportunity, liberty, quality of life, far beyond what we could earn or deserve, and they believe that, it's, that in no small way is it related to the fact that we were the first nation to recognize 
the reestablishment of the Jewish homeland. I'll curse thee that curse thee. Look at the empires, not countries, empires that chose to deal harshly with the Jewish people. And if they even still exist today, they are a rag, a remnant, a fragment of what they once were. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. We're going to unpack that one in great detail in a few moments. How is it possible that a people group, now try to wrap your, your brain around this. So if I had a graph, it would look like a mushroom cloud. It'd be so top-heavy and disproportionate. How is it possible that a people group that doesn't even make up one quarter of 1% of the world population, so if you take the 14, not even 15 million Jews in the world, 0.22, not even one quarter of 1%, but year in after year out, 25, 30, 35, 40% of the Nobel Prizes. And they all have to do with contributing to the quality of life or extending the days of life. If it has to do with leaving the world a better place than we found it, you can almost guarantee there's Jewish or Israeli fingerprints on it. Medicine, agriculture, in, in environment, communication. This is the first time I'm using this new program. And I love it, but I'm, but, but I'm new at it. So, uh, so we... So, I'm going to skip over. We had, we had a little trouble formatting some slides, so I'm going to give you some passages that I'm not going to throw up there because they, they're taking up two or three slides. So write down these, the, the scripture passages. When you go home, you're going to read them in detail. But, uh, but one of the first chronicled manifestations that our, at least our members and leaders believe that it is, uh, of the fulfillment of that promise that I'll bless those who bless thee, uh, you can find it in Luke 7, 1 through 10. Now, this is a story. It's a popular story with boys in Sunday school, and it's a story about a, a, the centurion, a Roman officer. Now, by, by Roman law, who is a Roman officer supposed to believe is God? Caesar. But here you have this Roman officer, the centurion, who's got a dying servant, apparently very precious to him, because what does he do? He goes to the Jewish elders of the town, and he asks them to persuade this rabbi Jesus to come into his house and heal his dying servant. Now, the text in Luke should not read the way that it does, because if you know what the oral law of the day is, it's not the written law of the day, but the oral law of the day is it's forbidden for a rabbi to go into the house of a Gentile. It's considered unclean. He's considered an infidel. But what do the Jewish elders do? They try to, they try to create a loophole for Jesus to get around the forbidden. And the case that they make for him is he's worthy of this. He loves our nation. He's built this a synagogue. He's put his heart, he's put his treasure where his heart is. And what do they do? You know, as they're making the case, you know, to, for him to go in there because he's built as a synagogue, the centurion comes running up. Some, some translations say, uh, you know, his messenger came running up. It says, it says, Jesus, don't even say, don't even bother. You don't need to go into my house. I know that if you just say the word that, that my servant will be healed. And it slays Jesus. He, he goes, I have not seen faith like that in all of Israel. He says, go home and it'll be as you say. And it, and it was. You see another centurion in Acts 10, Cornelius. Now, while Cornelius is having this, you know, this vision, not a vision, but he audibly hears the, the voice of God, that his prayers have been heard, his alms have been received. He's been, you know, he prays to the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He gives alms to the poor, to the widows and the orphans. And again, you've got Peter. He's seen a vision too. Remember the sheet that comes down and he's told, go ahead and kill the unclean and eat. That's a metaphor for bringing the gospel to the Gentiles. And so, well, but, G but Peter has the same problem that Jesus did. He can't go into the house of, of a Gentile. And what is the case that the messengers gave to Peter to get him to go into Cornelius' house? 
he's got a great reputation among the Jewish people. And this man that had a great reputation among the Jewish people, if you take a look at Romans 11, where we see that we are just as Gentiles, we are just a wild olive shoot that's being grafted in through the mercies of Jesus Christ to become co-heirs in the promises of the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And, 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 and Paul warns the early church, don't get all haughty and arrogant, thinking that you're not the root system holding everything up. You're a wild olive shoot. If the Lord can snap off an original branch, he can graft it back in. And that's a, that's a whole other presentation because the early church didn't heed that warning. We've got 1,700 years of the most unchristlike behavior under our banner to the Jewish people. And that's why when we knock on their door, we don't get an open arm red carpet welcome. But we're trying to, we're trying to, you know, our predecessors inflicted horrible wounds spiritually on the Jewish people. Pastor Ron, his wife, joined us last Tuesday at an event where we brought the Jewish and Christian communities together and, and you know, we're trying, to be, we're trying to put a salve on the wounds that our predecessors inflicted. Let me hit the pause button on that right there because I don't want to distract anybody. I don't want anybody being confused about where I'm coming from. Christians United for Israel is an evangelical Christian organization. We're not ecumenical, not interfaith. Yeah, we work hand-in-hand with the Jewish community lo- locally and, 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 and in Israel, but we don't check anything at the door. I don't make any, when I meet with Jewish leaders, I don't make a secret about it, and I don't make an apology for it. I believe Jesus Christ is the Messiah. The only thing that separates us from other pro-Israel organizations is that I don't demand that my Jewish friends agree with me theologically before I'm going to commit to stand with them unwaveringly. And that, and, and, you know, we're just going to do the best we can until the Messiah comes. And we're not going to ask if it's his first or second visit. right but uh, but let's let's uh, let's plow forward so let's finish up with Cornelius's household this man that had a great reputation among the Jewish people in in Acts 10 because of that the Lord chose him and his family and his household to be the tip of that wild olive shoot he was the first Gentile family to be grafted in so Let's just start taking a look at some of these things. Drip irrigation technology is one of the things that was it was invented on a kibbutz in Israel in 1964. You got to realize that Israel is almost all desert, very little water, heavy metals in some of the desert land, almost impossible to grow stuff. But they've invented drip irrigation technology that's now being used around the world to feed you know families to extend growing seasons where they're uh, into months that they couldn't grow things and to um, uh, grow things where they never could before. One of the things that they developed is cherry tomatoes. I think that's a, a tremendous blessing myself. I love cherry tomatoes. But here you've got, here you have a desert that's not unlike what you would find in Nevada, uh, but using greenhouse technology and drip irrigation technology, you have a nation that using their desert land, one of their number one exports is agriculture. It's such, it is so successful, again, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. What, they're so successful that it's created industrial tourism, where the very best experts in agriculture representing nations go to Israel to learn how they can be better than they already are. These are, these are people from China visiting Israel. A little bit south of here, we have the largest Native American reservation in the country in North America, and that's the Navajo Nation. Sweeps from New Mexico up into Arizona. It, almost identical 
desert challenges from Israel and the Navajo Nation. Ben Shelley, the former uh, president of the Navajo Nation, heard that Israel had solved all the challenges that his farmers were facing, actually went to Israel, saw firsthand that they were exactly the same kind of deserts, same kind of soil challenges, same kind of water challenges, not exactly the same kind of water challenges. The Navajo Nation gets eight times the rainfall that Israel gets. So they were, they, they were already, you know, the, the, the deck was stacked in their favor. So he said, you know what, can you help us bring this to the Navajo people? So three of the Israelis' top hydrologists, experts, flew to Shiprock, New Mexico, trained about 200 Navajo farmers how to use their technology, and today they're actually feeding themselves. They're growing, they're using the greenhouse technology and the drip irrigation technology uh, to grow crops where they've never been able to grow crops before. They're talking about now doing farmer's markets and farm-to-fork restaurants. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Families means tribes. Families means nations. If we, you know, there are, there are churches in this city, there are churches across this country that are meeting, you know, on a Sunday morning, and they believe, and I'm not, I don't know what's in their heart. I'm not, gonna, I'm not wagging my finger at any of them. I, I, if they're trying to preach the gospel, God bless them. But when it comes to Israel, they think that the modern state of Israel is nothing more than a secular state that was founded just out of guilt in the wake of the Holocaust and that it has nothing to do with what was biblically foretold. And that is their loss. Because if you're suggesting you know, that, that it has nothing to do with what was biblically foretold and you can, and you can see God's fingerprints all over all this that he's doing, you are suggesting that either God doesn't do what he promised that he's going to do or he's not capable of doing what he said he's going to do. And the faith that my, or the, the God that my faith rests in is very capable of doing what he said he's going to do, even if it seems impossible. He's a miracle-working God. China, you've got drip irrigation. You've got the greenhouses and drip, and drip irrigation technology in China, growing crops where they've never grown crops and extending the growing season where they could grow crops by months on each end. You know, I come from uh, California. I'm based in Sacramento, and when Benjamin Netanyahu met with our governor Jerry Brown a few years ago. The only thing, the number one thing that he wanted to talk about was our drought. We have the worst drought in our recorded history. Uh, you know, you, if your sprinklers, if you get you get caught with your sprinklers running in the gutter, you're going to get a, a letter in the mail with a fifty dollar invoice on it. And uh, you know, it's it you know we're, we're ch it has to ch we're changing the culture of how we manage water in California. And and one of the first things that, that Governor Brown asked Netanyahu was, how can we implement the technology? Uh, to get us out of the drought that, that Israel has. And, and it's drip irrigation technology, all, all kinds of technology. Uh, and so you may have heard of desalinization plants. I don't know if you have, where, where the, a, a plant actually draws seawater and, and takes the salt out of it and makes it usable for either agriculture or consumption. We've had a handful of desalinization plants in North America. Most of them des desalinate about 2,500 gallons a day the big beefy ones, about 25,000 gallons a day. The Poseidon desalinization plant outside of San Diego was designed as an Israeli-designed desalinization plant. It's managed and run by an Israeli company. It's owned by an American company, but it's an Israeli-designed you know, desalinization plant. Now San Diego, and it just opened up a couple months ago, now San Diego is getting 54 million gallons a day from this desalinization plant. So they don't even know what to do with all the water. 
and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. You probably have read Isaiah 66 more times than you can count, but you probably didn't catch the fact that the text is a pretzel. It's a mirror reflection of what it should be. Before she was in labor, she gave birth. You don't give birth before you go into labor. <laughs> unless you have a C-section. But the reality is, is that that's exactly what happened with Israel. She, went, she gave birth and then she went into labor. David Ben-Gurion announced Israel's independence. And the moment before he barely, barely finished his sentence, her Arab neighbors sought to cast every last Jew into the sea. War broke out and she went into labor. But millions of Americans, millions of Christians believe that, that that's exactly what, what happened, that a nation was born in a day on May 14th, 1958. I'm going to take a bird walk. I just, I just got back. I saw Pastor Ron Tuesday night. We had that big event that I talked about. And I, had, I, I landed here in Vegas at about 2 o'clock because I, I left Anchorage at about 5 a.m. And one of the interesting things about uh, Alaska is that it played an integral part in the founding of Israel. It's got an amazing Jewish history, and I'm going to tell you a, a story that I think is kind of kind of fun. Uh, when when Israel was was founded in 1948, uh, you got to you got to appreciate a couple things. A, a couple of decades earlier, the Ottoman Empire, the, you know, was was the Arab Emirate was uh, all throughout the Middle East. World War One broke out. World War One brought down the Ottoman Empire. You have a lot of Islamic nations that are scratching their head trying to figure out how is it possible that these infidels, that these Gentiles could bring down the, the Ottoman Empire. And then they have the audacity to establish a Jewish state right in the middle of what so recently was the Ottoman Empire, the Arab Emirate. And, and many of the Islamic nations thought that that is an absolute abomination, that a Jewish state would have the audacity to be established right in the heart of what was so recently the Arab Emirate. And so many of these Arab nations had Jewish communities that had been there before Islam was even a thought, including Yemen. And, and these, these Jewish communities in these Arab nations uh, found themselves at death's door. Uh, th there was so much anger over the fact that the, uh, that the Jewish state had been established that the only wall that they had to punch, the only cat they had to kick, was their own local Jewish community that had been their neighbors and living amongst them. And, w and hence was the case in Yemen. You've got 50,000 Yemenite Jews that have been living there. The, uh, scholars think that they were holdovers from Solomon's caravan that came through. That's how long they, they had been there. And now all of a sudden, you know, you have Great Britain that's acting as the world's referee telling this infant state of Israel, you've got to get these Jews out of here or their blood's going to be on your hands. Now, Israel doesn't have the... the Hardware. They don't have the air force to do the kind of airlift, emergency airlift campaigns that you know that the emergency is is necessitating. So what they do is they, the, what they can do is they can raise the money. They've got a lot of sympathy throughout the international community, so they can raise the money and farm it out and, and contract it. And so they put, you know, they've got this fifty thousand Yemenite Jews. They've got twelve months to get them out of Yemen, and they generate a, 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 a basically a, a project proposal. Right at the very top, extremely dangerous campaign. High, casual, or high expectation of casualties. Expect to be shot at when you're in the air. Expect to be bombed at when you're on the ground. Selling points, you know, to get people to line up, you know, to bid on the contract. One company uh, bids on the contract, Alaska Airlines. Alaska Airlines was just a charter company. They didn't, they weren't a, a normal airline. They were just a charter company. 
And so uh, Alaska Airlines bids on it. They're the only one that does. They get it. And uh, one of the curious things that happens is that the, the Yemenites, they had never seen an airplane before. They'd seen them in the sky, and they just thought that they were really weird birds. They'd never seen an airplane up close before. Now, they're living in a tent refugee camp, and all of a sudden, this one of these giant metal birds comes taxiing up you know, to them. They're freaking out. Robert McGuire, who's one of the Cracker Jack pilots, uh, tells them, you know, you've got to get aboard. We've got to get, get you out here. And they're going, like, absolutely not. We're not going to get on that thing. Are you crazy? <laughs> and he remembers his Catholic Sunday school lessons. And he says, remember in the book of Exodus how the Lord brought, you, brought the Israelites back to Israel on the wings of eagles? This is your eagle. And so they ripped, this, they ripped the seats out of the plane to pack them in like sardines because they didn't, know how, they didn't know how much time they'd have to get them out. They didn't know how many trips that they'd be able to do. They packed them in. Now, you don't have to be a math genius to know that if you have a plane that's designed to carry 60 people with X hundreds of gallons of fuel to go X number hundreds of, or thousands of miles, if you rip all the seats out, instead of putting 60 people in, you put 180 people in, that payload, weight-wise, plays havoc with the fuel load and how far the plane can go. And there isn't a page in the operating manual that covers that. So he had to, they, they didn't know how far they'd be able to go, and they learned the hard way when they did an emergency landing on one of their first flights in Port Assad, Egypt. Now, they're hanging Jews in the town square in Cairo, and Robert McGuire has to do an emergency landing in Egypt. He hits the tarmac. As soon as he starts coming to a crawl, there's military vehicles on both sides with their weapons pointed at him, and the ra and tower radio's down. <laughs> State your business. <laughs> and now, now, first of all, you have to take a step back. I don't know how many of you have ever been to Alaska, but you, you have a guy who was, one, he was a fighter pilot, and now he's a bush pilot in Alaska. <laughs> bush pilots have absolute nerves of steel. They're crazy. I mean, they, they fly hot rod airplanes that have oversized tires that are underinflated so that they can land like, like a lawn dart, you know? And so, I mean, they can land on a, on a mountain shelf or in a dry riverbed. They, these guys have nerves of steel. Not a whole lot of stuff makes their palms sweat. And so here, this, you know, he's taxiing on, on this, you know, tarmac. There's military vehicles on both sides. And he radios back to the tower, Robert McGuire does. Says, I'm gonna need every ambulance, every hospital bed, every doctor, every nurse that you can muster. I think every passenger on this plane has smallpox. <laughs> There's dead silence. <laughs> Don't open the door. We're going to refuel you. You're going to take off immediately. Why did the Lord restore Israel? Why did he regather them from the north and the south and the east and the west? Was it because they earned it? Was it because they're worthy? Was it because they're pious? Because they deserved it? Because they were observant? Only reason he did it was because he said he would do it. He did it because he said he would do it. He did it for his name's sake. In, in Ezekiel 36, and that song that we sang you know, earlier was from Ezekiel 37. But in Ezekiel 36, he says, even though you defiled my name, I'm going to show myself holy before the nations. For, my, for his namesake, he did it. He didn't do it for the Jews' namesake. He did it for his own namesake. 
before, you know, if, if, if Pastor Ron and I had gone to Israel 100 years ago, this is the Esdralon Valley that we would have seen. Now, this picture and the one I'm about to show you is very critical. We're not going to get into politics today. Usually when I do a presentation, it's a Middle East update. And, you know, Mom always told you when you go to a family reunion, don't talk about religion or politics. You talk about Israel, you kill both birds with one stone. And it's very easy to get, you know, waist deep in politics when you talk about Israel. And usually when I do a presentation, we do, we wade, we, we get into a Middle East briefing and we do get into politics. We're not going to get into the weeds here. But I am going to just touch on one thing because this is a very important fact. This is an important piece of history for, y for you to keep in your peripheral vision. Because one of the clubs that is used to bludgeon Israel with to demonize and delegitimize her is that she's a land-stealing, territory-expanding occupier. And it's very critical for you to realize that right up until May 14th of 1948, there was not one square inch that a Jew was residing on that they did not purchase through legal real estate transaction. And usually, for worthless land at highway robbery over inflated prices. Hence being swampland that's infested with malaria that people are petrified to go near. But if you give Jewish immigrants swampland and they're bringing with them Western agriculture technology, guess what they're going to do with it? This is the Esdalon Valley that Pastor Ron and I saw. They harness, they, they drain those swamps and they use that water to turn it from a death valley to a breadbasket. Let's go back and take a look at Ezekiel 36 again. Again, if I, told, if I told you that was a picture of Nevada, you would not tell me otherwise. My wife and I, got, we went out, no, we went out, we drove out to Hoover Dam yesterday, and that's exactly the kind of land that we drove by to get there. Ezekiel 36, and the desolate land shall be tilled, whereas it lay desolate in the sight of all that passed by it. What does the very next passage in Ezekiel say? It doesn't look like Nevada. It looks like Napa. And they shall say, this land that was desolate has become like the Garden of Eden. And it has. That is the, that's the land that Pastor Ron and I saw when we looked out the window of our bus. How many of you have ever been to Israel? How many of you would like to go to Israel? <laughs> Looks like you've got a project in front of you. <laughs> Here's another passage. The, the, the last day that we were in Israel, we had dinner right at that city. That's Jaffa. It's a, it's a suburb of Tel Aviv. And what is, again, the next passage in Ezekiel. And the waste and desolate ruined cities are become fenced and are inhabited. This is Tel Aviv today. It's an international hub of technology contributing to the international community. Amos 9. I'll bring my exiled people of Israel back from distant lands, and they will rebuild their ruined cities and live in them again. They'll plant vineyards and gardens. They'll eat their crops and drink their wines. And I will firmly plant them there in their own land, and they will never again be uprooted. When, you, when the Lord in whom your faith rests says never again, how long do you think he means? <laughs> never again. You know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to wrap a little bit earlier than normal. But uh, I just want to just tell you that uh, there's a couple of opportunities with this organization. Uh, you know, in the back, or you were, given a, you were given a pledge card that you could fill out. And that would just put you in touch with kind of uh, what we have going on. If this isn't your home church, then we could do a meeting of some sort at your home church. But one of the things that I want to encourage you is that, that 
uh, every year, uh, you know, our, our flagship every year is bringing Christians to Washington, D.C., where they can be the salt. You know, you're called to be salt and light beyond the thresholds of those doors in the back of this room. And that includes the political fabric of this nation, you know, engaging our elected officials so that we can, we can steer and, and, you know, hopefully uh, impact the trajectory and direction that this nation is going. The, the word sin means to miss the target. And, and to miss the target, you, it just means by one degree to the left or the right, you can totally miss the target. But if that's the truth, uh, correction by one degree to the left or the right can actually help you hit the target. And so, you know, I would say that the absolute, uh, you know, top short list of the assets that the enemies of Israel have, that the enemies of the United States have, sit in churches just like this every Sunday morning. And there are people that don't realize the significance that their voice has on their elected officials uh, and, and, and the impact that you have when you vote. I'm not here to tell you how to vote or who to vote for. I'm just telling you to don't underestimate the significance of, of the influence that you have. You may think, you know, I'm out here, you know, in Las Vegas. What influence can I have? A lot more than you realize. A lot more than you realize. And there's some people, there are ministries actually. There are ministers that vocationally make a very lucrative living uh, basically teaching Christians that they should not engage the political process, that it's absolutely a corrupt process. And if you peel the layers back on their teachings, the core principle, the cornerstone of the basis of their argument goes, you know, to the, the, when Jesus is on standing on the tower and, and the devil says, you know, look at all these kingdoms. I have the authority to, uh, to give them to you if you just bow down and worship me. That's the, that is the cornerstone passage that, the, that, that, he's ba that it's based on for you to not, because obviously if the devil has authority over governments, then governments must be influenced. First of all, um, it's a pretty slippery slope to create a theological position based upon something that the devil said. <laughs> you know, it's only a few lines after that that he's, that he's called the father of lies. Uh, so, I, you know, I, I would like to make a, p a point that... Uh, isn't in the Bible. It's in the and I'm, I'm going to try to make a biblical point in, in the book of Nehemiah about what's not written there. And Pastor Ron's going, oh boy, I'm going to get some really angry emails tomorrow. If you take a look at the book of Nehemiah, and, uh, and I can tell this church, I can tell you being the, in this city, this city has a stigma that it doesn't deserve, by the way. Uh, uh, I, I cover the 13 states west of Nebraska. And uh, Las Vegas has the most vibrant Christian community of most of the cities that I, that I go to. It's a, it is, the neon lights get too much credit. But to be called to minister in this city, you can identify with the book of Nehemiah. I guarantee you that not, not, maybe not uh, tangibly or you know, literally, but I guarantee you that Pastor Ron and others uh, and his peers have ridden you know, at, at night to see where the, the chinks in the walls are. And uh, what, what you see in Nehemiah is you have a man who scholars say has never, had never been to the city of Jerusalem before. Yet a writer comes into town, his brother and some writers come into town, and he knows that they came from Jerusalem, and he asks them to give a report. And they give a report that the people have been scattered, that the walls have been broken, the gates have been burned. And he goes into grieving like he just learned that his father had died over a city that he had never been to before. Now, it's important for you to realize Nehemiah 
is the cupbearer to the king. It's a very dispensable job. Great gig to have because you get to live in the palace. You get to eat, you know, and drink with the king eats and drinks. And the reason that you get to eat and drink it is because your job is to die if somebody tries to poison the king. That's what the cupbearer's job is. He's there. He's a poison filter. He's a poison flag. But he, he's close to the king. And I almost, you know, I've got a macabre sense of humor. And I, now if you look at the passages, the king goes, are you okay? And I'm thinking, he's probably, he probably just ate what he saw Nehemiah eat about an hour earlier. And he's going, are you okay? You don't look so good. And, he t- and, he, and Nehemiah tells him about the report that he'd heard about the city of Jerusalem. He's praying between breaths. And you know what, and the point that I'm trying to make is what Nehemiah doesn't say. You know what it doesn't say in Nehemiah? It doesn't say that Nehemiah got down on his knees and, you know, hid under his prayer shawl and, you know, rocked in a fetal position until another writer came into town and gave another report that someone else had gone and rebuilt the walls and rebuilt the gates and regathered the people. It said that he prayed like none of us ever have or ever will, he got up, he engaged the, the government authority of the day. He was given favor. And he went, and with a trowel in one hand and a sword in the other, he went and he tangibly acted. He regathered the people. The king gave him favor. He gave him a signet ring to show that he was going to serve as an interim governor. He gave him license to harvest the cedars, rebuild the gates, and permission to cross foreign lands. And so, you know, if... If you have never engaged your elected officials to be the salt and light that you're supposed to be, it's way easier than you think it is. And you have, you have elected officials in this state that are dying to hear from you. That, and you will be encouraged if you engage them. So I'm going to uh, I'm gonna wrap this up with an antidote that I, that I usually, usually share with people. Uh, at these presentations, and I've not been given the release to uh, to avoid it. The the first year that we went to Washington D.C., we it, it started out with a meeting at Pastor Hagee's church uh, with you know those 400 people, and 150 200 of them said that they were going to go to D.C. in July, and five months later to to bring that message to our elected officials. We're Christian constituents; we vote people in, we vote people out, and we're paying attention. And that, you know, that first year we thought maybe that we'd have a thousand people, but in a, what we thought was a leap of faith, we planned on 1,500 people, and 3,600 people showed up. And our elected officials didn't, you know, didn't think that we'd ever come back because most groups don't come back again. And the next year we had 4,000 people. And the third year they were hoping that we wouldn't come back, <laughs> and we had 4,500 people, and it's been growing every year. But one of the things that happened was that we learned that uh, the media is not out to cast Christians in a very positive light. They like to cast us as a caricature of ourselves. And so we gave them rules. They had to have credentials. They couldn't be certain places without a staffer with them. And uh, I was you know, making my way through a sea of people in the lobby, and I saw the proverbial mic boom, you know, with the furry wind guard on it. I get closer, I see a big shoulder camera, I get closer, they don't have any credentials, they're not with a staffer, they're totally rogue, they're they're doing their own thing. And this person's interviewing a Holocaust survivor, frail lady, white hair, wearing short sleeve top so that you can clearly see the number tattooed on her left forearm. And with 
all the condensation that is possible to weave into one's voice inflection. The person says, how does it make you feel to know that after all you survive, you do realize that with Iran on the rise, that your kids and grandkids will probably face the same thing. And without missing a beat, she said, it's not the same thing. We were alone that time, and we're not alone this time. And if that, if, if that resonates with you, if, if, if you can lock arms with that if, that, if that is in alignment with what the Lord has put in your heart to do with Israel and the Jewish people, then we would love to, uh, to be by your side. We'd love to work with you. We'd love to, to you know, add your voice to ours so that we can uh, have a greater impact corporately. Uh, just take a look at what the Word of God says about Israel, and all you're going to realize is that your faith rests in a God that's in the business of keeping his promises. Thank you for letting me be a guest in your house today.